Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened this week while President Donald Trump is away on foreign business. The wider world got a look at the latest White House budget proposals. And the experience was like staring into a moral void. Broadly targeted for elimination, just about anything that offers assistance to the poor and vulnerable. Cashing in big time, rich income earners. There are education cuts that could decimate profitable research, new burdens on food stamp providers that could result in fewer in the marketplace. Joining us to marvel at the pure draconian nature of it all is Alexis Goldstein from Americans for Financial Reform. Meanwhile, the murder of Seth Rich, a young D.C. resident and Democratic National Committee staffer, was a tragedy for those who knew him. But the Internet's conspiracy swamps and right-wing media outlets have teamed up to further traumatize Rich's family and friends. It's a story of weaponized fake news and is perfectly emblematic of the surreal world that Donald Trump has both ushered in and continues to maintain. Finally, four years ago, Thomas Piketty's book Capital in the 21st Century took the world by storm, a deeply researched tome on the history of wealth inequality that managed to jump beyond the mere academic audience it was intended for and become a popular bestseller. Now, a new book called After Piketty, The Agenda for Economics and Inequality has arrived, bringing together a wide group of economists and social scientists to try to assess the impact Piketty's book has had since it hit the shelf. Joining us to talk about this and give us a taste of the new book is one of its editors, Marshall Steinbaum. I'm Jason Lincolns with HuffPost reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Travis Waldron. Here's what happened first. Welcome back, everybody. You know what time it is. Time for some of that So That Happened podcast, our uh, weekly look at the world around us and whether or not we're all going to die. <laughs> My name is Jason Lincoln. I'm the editor of Eat the Press at the Huffington Post. Um, uh, our, our regular co-host, Arthur Delaney, is here. Hi. Our good friend, Zach Carter, is not. He is on book leave. He's writing a book, The Oral History of the Band 311. It's going to be released on... <laughs> Noff's imprint could be really good. It's his favorite band, Zach's favorite band. Um, Zach's not here, but joining us, we're really excited to have uh, Travis Waldron with us. I know nothing about 311. Uh, They were a band. I know that. They were – people like them. Are we going to talk about politics? Yeah, we're going to talk about politics. We have a really good show today. We're going to talk about the budget. But first of all, we're going to talk about this really, really uh, terrible, terrible, terrible – media story. On the, sometime in the morning of July 10th, 2016, uh, a man named Seth Rich, uh, who was a very, very low-level staffer for the Democratic National Committee, 
was killed on the streets of Washington, D.C. in the Bloomingdale neighborhood. A young uh, man. Yes. Uh, and uh, this is a story. It's obviously very sad. Uh, and obviously, you know, our our best wishes go out to all of the, of the people that Seth left behind, his family and friends. Uh, but this is a story that should have never really jumped out of the local news track. And it should have never really jumped out of the D.C. police are searching for an assailant who murdered a young man on the streets of Washington track. But something really fucked up happened. And what happened involves fake news, conspiracy mongers. Julian Assange. Julian Assange and Sean Hannity, among other people. Uh, the story reached its climax this week. Yeah, yeah. And so we're here to talk about it. Travis, you have been uh, kind of on this story for us. Take us through the brass tacks of what happened in the immediate wake after Seth Rich was, was murdered. So two weeks after Seth Rich was murdered, WikiLeaks published uh, tens of thousands of emails from inside the DNC, internal emails and memos. It's what led to Debbie, Debbie Wasserman Schultz having to resign. Um so the right wing and people on Reddit and 4chan and, you know, the good places on the Internet began to paint this conspiracy that Seth Rich was actually the link between WikiLeaks and the DNC. Uh, the and, DNC and that he'd emails, been killed. That, and that he was killed in retribution. That was the theory, that Hillary Clinton and or Debbie Wasserman Schultz and or the Democratic National Committee had Seth Rich murdered because this got out. Now, there were – this was not the only leaked. Was not the email. only leaks. No, he worked for the DNC. Did he work for John Podesta? No. Did he work just for the DNC? Oh, okay, so. just that he was a data analyst. He was in charge of building like voter outreach programs. Um, yeah, he didn't really have in his day. I don't. Day even, I don't even think he had like would have had access to all of these emails. You know, emails. like I don't think he was copied on Debbie Wasserman Schultz's everyday emails to to staff. You yeah, know, like to her immediate staff uh so the, there's more than a whiff of incredulity right what, what you described already this already but sounds so this like ridiculous this sort of pong. this sort of stayed in the you know the bottom of the internet and on this like kind of right-wing conspiracy and then there were some like left-wingers the ultra left-wing who got in on this too a little bit but not nearly as deep and it, it kind of stayed there until last week when Fox 5, which is the local D.C. affiliate, published a story citing Rod Wheeler, a private investigator who was weirdly contracted by the family to investigate this case through another guy who was actually paying him. Wheeler and the other guy who were actually paying him are both Fox News contributors. He goes to Fox 5 and says, I have confirmed evidence that Seth Rich was linked to WikiLeaks. Now, the evidence in this story was secondhand. It if you read the if you actually read the original story and thought this is nailed down, I severe I really question your comprehension. This was a um, really unusual story <laughs> to see on a local TV right. station's and it's, website. It's, it's one sourced, it's a private investigator who says someone told me that this is on his laptop. Well, a few hours later, or the next morning, Fox News comes out with their version that cites an unnamed federal investigator. National Fox this guy, News. National Fox News, foxnews.com. That story also seemed pretty baseless if you just read it. And 
I mean, it, it cites this one unnamed federal investigator anyway. A few hours later, the whole thing unravels. The FBI comes out and says, we're, we, we've never examined this guy's laptop, which was the central claim in the Fox News version of the story. Right. Uh, the rich family blasts this as conspiracies. The everyone else is kind of poking holes in it. DC Metro Police calls it absurd, says, you know, all of these claims are nuts. They did look at the laptop. Yeah, I believe DC Metro Police has the laptop and, and they, they looked and, at it and, and they've they looked said, at it. No. And there's, right. The, the DC no police there. believes this is just a botched robbery attempt, which if you live in Washington, DC, you know that that happens. Yeah. And so the Fox News story sort of unravels and the family demands a correction. And meanwhile, our good friend, friend of the show, right? Sean Hannity. Oh, good friend of the show. <laughs> starts, he picks this up and, and he's kind of hinted at it in the past, but the last week or so, he's really run with it. And he's been like a werewolf. Yeah. And, you know, Newt Gingrich was on Fox News also drumming crazy. this up. Fox and Friends was drumming this up. And it just, it, it's, it's sad because it's pathetic. This, it's pathetic and it's sad and it's, it's journalistic malpractice for, Fox News. Now they retracted. Their, they retracted their, their story this week. Finally, a week later, they retracted it. But and they said I, it didn't meet their exacting standards. Didn't, didn't meet the, meet their standards. I'll just the point out that still every lot. other news organization that said we're going to pass on this obvious moldering pile of horseshit right. has better <laughs> journalistic standards than Fox. And the because que- right, the question isn't the question is why was it published from the get go? Right, because um, it was a moldering pile of horseshit. Right. And and meanwhile, the rich family penned an op-ed in the Post, in addition to all the statements right. they made, in which they just begged people, stop, stop. ruining our lives. Right. Stop like, making us relive the murder and of our I, sons. Right. And I, I suppose mean, we're actually now contributing to the ruination of their lives a little bit. Sorry. Yeah. Well, well th- okay. Here's that's why been this- sort of the fundamental thing about this. Is it's sort of why I think we approached it from the media angle, was that this is – with uh, like it's nuts that people are doing this. Yeah. Here's why and it matters for us to talk about. I feel like we the, wanted to put it to bed. This is emblematic of the Trump era. Trump launched his pol- political career by doing this, by lying and making up an insane, utterly unbelievable, phony conspiracy theory about President Barack Obama's birth certificate. Yeah. That's his, this is the MO of, of, Weird, fringy guys like Donald Trump in politics. Now. You know, before you said, before you finished that sentence and said Barack Obama's birth certificate, I was like, which one is Arthur going to pick? Is he going to pick? <laughs> is he going to pick uh, Muslims in New Jersey cheered nine eleven? Is he going to pick uh, Ted Cruz's dad helped do the JFK assassination? Right, right. So this is that's the that's the point I'm making. This yeah. is now actually how our politics works, and any random person can become collateral damage. We have always had. Had weird, uh, pointless conspiracies festering on the right. internet for as long as the internet has yeah, existed. Sure. There is even a conspiracy theory that I am actually a different person named Dave J. That's true. It was, uh, a- but this it didn't matter. You know, it hasn't been picked up by the cretins like Sean Hannity and Newt Gingrich and all the other very high profile people who picked it up. And that's what's new now. We have the president right. of the United States and major media fin- figures. Who will champion this kind of internet froth yeah. that never used to get this kind of right? Vision, it's, and it's, it's sick. They give it oxygen. Yeah, and you know when Fox News published published their story and Fox Five published their story, it was mere minutes before it was on Drudge 
and on Breitbart and spreading around. And it, you know, again, if you just read the original stories with an ounce of like critical eye, then you would have seen this is nuts. Yeah. That like you don't have it. You don't have the goods here. It's, and it's like it and and it it gave oxygen to this conspiracy that now this week, you know, members of Congress are going on CNN and breathing air into it. And Blake Fahrenheit, Blake Fahrenheit, whose evidence was there's stuff circulating on the internet. Right, there's like all kind there's always I, some shit I, on the internet. I think if we're if uh, if America's going to get through the Trump era, uh, these people have to be massively discredited and lose their jobs. And that may – you know, Sean Hannity uh, as of Thursday morning was taking an, an unplanned vacation. Right. He's be- losing advertisers and, yeah. you know, I mean I think it's seven I don't know how many Thursday morning. It's, it's, but – and that – you're right. I think that like you can't be allowed to do this with I, any – with it, without any like major blowback. And, and I, I do – Feel bad that, you know, every time a guy from Fox says something or somebody goes on Fox or and and rehashes this, then, you know, it's restarts the cycle where we swat it down or other people swat it down. I I feel bad for the family on that. But it there is the larger point here that like somebody somebody has to call them on this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you can't you can't ignore it. uh, And it does bring additional negative attention. But the. The fact that it's become meta is what has led to accountability, you know, some measure of accountability right. for Sean Hannity. It's hard to be hopeful, though, that this kind of thing will stop happening when the president of the United States remains in office after launching a political career on birtherism. This is a, I, I think this is a really, there's something to be said about why Sean Hannity is is so deep into the story, the way he is, because he's up until he, uh, there. I remember the day. That we thought he was going to uh, Fox News, that is the larger Fox News channel, retracted the story. Sean Hannity had a show that night. The way he was acting on Twitter looked like he might be rebelling against Fox News' decision to call that story discredited. He eventually he 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 said he was going to stop talking about it out of respect for the family, which didn't make any. But sense an to hour me because, after the retraction, he was on the radio, right, saying exactly. that he was not going to stop. And yeah. I am not FoxNews.com. I don't care. They can't stop me. Yeah, I mean, this the the idea that that Sean Hannity has respect for the family is false. He doesn't. He wouldn't be on the story if he really thought. There's there's no universe in which Sean Hannity is like God. I really gotta I really gotta find out what happened to that DNC and staffer. He's doing it explicitly. As a mercenary for the president. Yeah, exactly. He has right. actually said that if the Seth Rich murder connection to the WikiLeaks is, is proved true, it totally discredits the uh, Russia-related investigation into yeah. the president. Which is the larger point. That's the that's the point that ever, like this that has allowed this to fester on the right wing is that. And I think this, this is absolves Russia, which U.S. intelligence officials, meanwhile, not that they should always be trusted, but they have said that. They have attributed the hacking of the DNC to Russian hackers working on behalf of the Russian government. Yeah. It, yeah. That, that then leaked it to WikiLeaks. Right. So, you know, there's, there's just literally at every level here. Yeah. Unless you believe, unless you believe that a party that couldn't keep its email secure is managing to murder people, is managing to, to murder, identify and murder, murder people and then cover it up. Yeah, it nothing, seems... like nothing gets covered up in this. Also, like... the timing of this wouldn't they make it like really just a revenge killing? Right, it's it's just it so no absurd. Sense. 
it and, makes no sense. The um, I, I just I just want to say that you know, the two two things that people should probably marinate in before we leave the story behind. The first thing is that let's face it: if the Trump administration was succeeding right now, if they were if they're racking up policy wins, if they were bringing jobs back, if wages were going up, there was some if there was any kind of good news about what Donald Trump had been, was doing in office, that's what be, would be on Sean Hannity's show. Okay. The the fact that Sean Hannity had to talk about the story at all is because, as a hack for Donald Trump, he had a huge vacuum to fill. There was nothing to work with. So Seth Rich became the other thing. The other thing I'll just say is uh, Wednesday night in Montana, um, a Guardian reporter named Ben Jacobs was essentially assaulted by uh, the, the Republican candidate for Congress. I don't, I don't think you need the essentially. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's pretty clearly. John, he was John literally Ford. charged with assault. Yes, he was literally charged with assault. Now, in this particular instance, uh, the, the John Fort lied and said, "Oh, this guy Ben Jacobs, he was the instigator of the attack." Uh, the people who witnessed the what happened were a Fox News crew, okay? Uh, and to their credit, and it's a real fallen world that I have to say to their credit because if either of you had witnessed in this witnessed the attack report, I wouldn't say to to Arthur's credit he told the truth. No, to to Fox News's credit, they said, yeah, no, this John Ford's lying. He attacked Ben Jacobs straight up and down. It's going to be a real test of Fox News now to see how much play they give this story, a story their reporters nailed. They were the primary eyewitnesses. They're the now the, the, the actual, the people who are now in the best position to hold power to account. It's going to be interesting to see how Fox News plays this story, their story that they got, they earned, compared to how they covered Seth Well, Rich. and the key question is TV. Yeah. Because they, you know, there are reporters, there are print reporters at Fox News who do a good job. Very many. But a lot of the work like this never makes it to TV, which is where they do their best. Yeah. Anyway, uh it's a it's been a it's been a terrible story and, and people should stop reporting bullshit about Seth Rich and his murder so his family can have some start to have some peace. Uh, we have a really good show. It's mostly not about murder, unlike most podcasts these days. Um, we will get to it right now. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. And we're back. So uh, this week, the Trump administration 
released a second version of their budget. If you remember the last time a budget their budget came out, it was not received particularly warmly. Uh, the glib way of talking about budgets in Washington, by the way, is to say that it is a statement of priorities. But it's not in my nature to let Washington people get away with their glib ways of talking about things. I think one of the things we were able to point out the last time this came out was that a budget is really sort of a statement of moral priorities. It's a moral document. And this one somehow comes up even more short on that than the last one. Here to talk about it, we have uh, our, our good friend Arthur Delaney. All right. And from Americans for Tax – not Tax Reform. Financial Reform. That? Financial Reform. I Got am not out. Grover Norquist yeah, I almost in disguise. Like, I, I almost really, <laughs> really, really almost miscredited you on that. Sorry. Americans for Financial Reform – Alexis Goldstein. Hello. There's so few names left it's for true. things now. It's kind of they all sound the same, and most people are trying to market themselves. But if you wanted to give me Grover Norquist's organization, I'm sure I could make good use of it. I would. I would definitely propose that for you. We just hand it right over to you. Um, <laughs> so this budget, um, Arthur. I think we should begin with you, sort of explaining to the folks what it is, what the budget process is like. Well, so first of all, this budget is the fuller version of what they put out in March that everyone probably remembers uh, because it made so much news. Uh, and the reason presidents put out budgets is that they have to. It's in the law, uh, part of an annual formal budget process that starts with the president's version. And then committees in the House and Senate make their versions. And uh, it, it evolves through that process. And even if the House and Senate then pass budgets – that's not the end. So they could pass the budget that has all these giant cuts to social programs in it, but those cuts wouldn't happen. There would then be an appropriations process. And then what has happened for the past eight years is that Congress gives up on this whole thing and we <laughs> fund the government with a series of ad hoc agreements that have nothing to do with the budget process. However, that doesn't mean it's not possible. That some of this stuff in the Trump budget could eventually become law either in a later funding bill or further down the road. So it's worth paying attention to even though there's a real fake news sham element to the whole thing. Well, Alexis, what should people take away from the budget process besides the fact that uh, it's sort of a fake news sham? <laughs> I mean, speaking as a citizen, perhaps not as a representative of my organization, I would take away that uh, the Trump administration wants to kill everybody or at least deeply <laughs> impoverish you. That would be my main takeaway from this okay. budget. I mean, one of the interesting things that a lot of people picked up on right away is that – and I don't know if we're equipped to fully talk about this – but that this budget um, is entirely founded on what amounts to an accounting error in which uh, I think – a, a Billion dollars is double counted. I heard it was There's two, two trillion. trillion. Dollars oh double. God! Okay, so I'm an idiot. It's two trillion dollars. <laughs> um, basically, yeah, Doctor Evil. This budget assumes that Donald Trump is going to pass what he's called the largest tax cut in American history, and then it projects that the growth stimulated by these tax cuts is going to create additional revenue that will flow in and fill the holes left by the draconian cuts to the to, to, to the budget. Um, now, a lot of economists will say that is a pretty dubious premise. Obviously, it's been something that has been attempted before. Uh, it's not really worked before. And we're not in an e economy where 
I would say we've had robust growth that the politicians like to claim is possible anyway. Wait, Alexis, didn't the Bush weren't the Bush tax cuts supposed to do exactly what the the Trump tax cuts are supposed to do, in which they don't add to deficits because they are so great for the economy that tax revenue increases. Well, and and then we found out that that was not true. And we also found out that under the Clinton administration, when we we didn't do things like that, that the economy actually was booming. And the, so I the think Bush this tax kind cuts of thing didn't pay for themselves. They did not. Oh, how about that? <laughs> um, but the projected growth that this budget predicts is not just supposed to cover the cost of the tax cuts. That same amount of money is also, according to this budget, projected to then balance the budget. It's basic double counting. And I'm pretty sure that if you have one thing, you don't get to count it as two things. But that is what they are doing. They also say that economic growth, that GDP will sit at 3% starting in 2020 into the foreseeable future. And never end. Right. And that there's no external shock or no bubble bursting. It's No, it's fake. Yeah, it's totally fake. The Center for Equitable Growth calls all of this a magic asterisk. So I suppose we we may all live to see how well a, a magical punctuation mark saves the world, but I, I wouldn't hold my breath. Let's get into some of the specifics. Here's one that uh, I think really ground your gears, Alexis. <laughs> um, there are an, a lot of uh, budget cuts to higher ed, uh, including something called the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. Can you talk us through what these cuts would actually uh, – what, the, what they think they're achieving by doing this and what it will actually create? So the language of the budget talks about how the public service loan forgiveness program like is unfair because it, you know, incentivizes some careers over others. But that was exactly the point. The public service loan forgiveness plan was established by George W. Bush, noted progressive George W. Bush, to basically tell people, hey, do you want to be a firefighter? Do you want to be a teacher? Do you want to like work in the government and do good? Maybe that won't make you that much money. So in exchange, we're going to forgive your loans after 10 years of on-time payments because we need firefighters and we need teachers and we need people to uh, do things like work for the government. Um, so the Trump budget has decided, no, that's that's not a good use of funds. We want everyone to work in the private sector, I guess. Um, we don't need firefighters. We don't need police officers. We don't need things like that. Um, and they propose eliminating the program after 2018, July 2018, um, completely replacing it with nothing. Is that, is that a big program? Nothing. It is a big program. Um, a lot of people don't know about it. So 33 million people are currently eligible for it because it's not just people who work in government. It's also people who work at 501c3 nonprofits are also eligible for the program. This October was supposed to – so 10 years have finally passed since right. George W. Bush signed this into law. The first people who were going to get their debt forgiveness was supposed to start happening this October. Uh, so 33 million people are currently eligible. The Trump administration has decided, no, nah, starting in 2018, we're, we're good. We don't want to do this anymore. The, the budget picks on a lot of what may be relatively obscure programs like that. Like there are probably hundreds in there that they say, just wholesale get rid of this because it offends conservative principle of uh, people doing for themselves and the government not helping at all. Well, there are a lot of cuts that are sort of like small from a government perspective, but are really mean. Like there's a Native American block grant that they reduced by uh, over $100 million. And they say explicitly in the budget that we're going to reroute this to higher priority areas. And it's sort of like, what do you mean? Like tax cuts for the rich? Like $100 million isn't that much money. It probably goes a long way in Native American communities. But nope, you've decided to cut that. Well, 
what's really interesting is some of these obscure programs, when they're eliminated, they sort of become big giveaways to the rich. It becomes like sort of welfare for the 1%. Um, Kristen Capps at City Lab uh, wrote a thing about the National Housing Trust Fund, mm-hmm. which is something else that would be zeroed out in this budget. The National Housing Trust Fund is essentially uh, – it, it takes in money from retail sales of, of, house, of homes – uh, and collects a bit of a kitty uh, to help America's most vulnerable families. We're talking about people who uh, have trouble staying in homes because they they have AIDS. We're talking about people who uh, live on on, uh, on 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 Indian reservations and vulnerable vulnerable populations that find it very difficult to 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 uh, to stay in their homes. It's not a lot of money and it's block granted, but local governments have the flexibility to kind of put it where it needs. This is this is how Kristen. Caps puts it. He says the truly mean trick in Trump's housing budget is it proposes growing cost savings over time by eliminating the housing trust fund. Since the fund is pegged to home sales, the growth in savings means the Trump administration predicts an absolutely booming housing market. A budget suggests savings of 177 million in 2020 by eliminating this, uh, and this and, and 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 the figure jumps to 247 million in 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 uh, 2021, 321 million in 2022. He says, in other words, Trump is suggesting double-digit growth at home sales year after year for the next several years. By 2027, the cost savings for eliminating the Housing Trust Fund and Capital Management Fund run to $378 million. That's money that the government might have put towards, say, permanently supporting housing for people with AIDS or families making just 30% of area immediate income. But Steve Mnuchin, who says future economic growth will be so profound, $2 trillion over 10 years, believes that the forthcoming tax cuts will pay for themselves. And the savings from the Housing Trust Fund will thus be redirected toward tax cuts to the very wealthy. I mean, that Americans. doesn't make any s- – yeah, I mean, it's crazy. And that's not the only housing program that gets butted – gets gutted, sorry. The the HUD budget includes a $1.9 billion cut to rental assistance for the elderly and for the disabled and for people who are just super low income and need rental assistance. And then there's like a $193 billion cut to the food stamps program to SNAP. And there's not just and that's 25 percent of the program. That's one thing it does. The other thing it does, it says over the next 10 years, we're going to start making the states pay for a big chunk of what's left after that massive cut. And states have never paid for for snaps. Uh, and then the other thing it does is it tells retailers, whether it's a teeny tiny bodega in New York or a little, you know, mom and pop grocery store in D.C. or like a Walmart, that they have to pay to accept SNAP. So they have to pay a fee. Yes. Now, the uh, the cut to food stamps is one of the bigger, both in terms of the cut to the program itself and just the scale of food stamps. It's it's the third biggest anti-poverty program after Medicaid and the Earned Income Tax Credit. Both of those get whacked, too. So in addition to this wide array of relatively smallish and perhaps obscure programs, there are massive cuts to the biggest programs as well. And a thing to watch here is how serious is the administration about this? Because there's a a legislative process for reauthorizing SNAP that uh, people on Capitol Hill are very invested in. And those people so far have said, you know, we're not really into the budget, we'll take a look at it, but we do this our own way. And Trump's agriculture secretary, Sonny Perdue, also doesn't sound that enthused about cutting food stamps. So are they just using it as an ATM for their budget, or will this be something they actually want to fight about? We can't know yet. So that, you know, talking about these programs, though, I, I think is valuable, and a lot of people say it's a, a valuable function of the, the, the budget process sham 
as it may be. <laughs> there are two things we haven't hit that are also really big, which is cuts to Social Security through cuts to the Social Security Disability uh, Insurance Fund, which people pay into, right? It's not right like they're like, oh, this is a benefit. We're getting rid of it. Like, you, we pay for it in the event we ever become disabled. So they're taking away something folks have already paid for. And then Medicaid, which they already cut $800 billion out of Medicaid in the AHCA, which who knows what will happen with that in the Senate. But now there's another, I believe it's some six. $600 billion yeah. dollar Medicaid cut in this budget, and it's unclear how you add those two numbers together. You just add them together. <laughs> so there's like over $1 on trillion dollar yeah. cut to Medicaid. So that's like, I, I saw a statistic that like 64% of people in nursing homes, that's paid for through Medicaid. Oh, yeah. Nursing homes, people should know, are, are one of the largest Medicaid expenditures, and that's not necessarily poor people either. I mean, that's just old people. Another thing that is worth mentioning is this budget uh, would prop- would cap federal indirect costs for research at ten percent, and mm. what that means is that uh, the budget would severely restrict the amount of federal funding that research universities can apply to overhead costs. And the, the sort of cutesy sounding rationale of this is that well, federal funding for research institutions should go to research. Suddenly, money is not fungible <laughs> anymore, but. Anyone who has experience in this area would tell you that you need libraries, broadband internet, you need lights that turn on and off, you need clean facilities, you need janitors and librarians and secretaries to run all that stuff. You can't do without it. And most universities do not have gigantic endowments like Harvard. They can't just pay for that stuff out of their kitty. Federal, the federal government's always sort of worked hand in hand with research institutions to fund these operations. And what's crazy is that these operations have been incredibly profitable for this country. Not just putting people in jobs, but generating, uh, generating all kinds of innovations and needs that only our particular uniquely networked research institutions can provide and this would sabotage that it's literally literally an act of sabotage that they're proposing this budget it's crazy to me i think a good one to watch is the social security disability insurance because it it butts up against trump's promise not to touch social security he probably in his mind only considered retirement insurance but the uh his budget director is is making all kinds of uh word games to to Pretend oh, that it's entirely separate. Beginning from with the double counting. Retirement insurance. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> does Trump actually want to have that fight? You know, is this something that he really wants his name associated with? It's it's hard to tell. It seems like much more of a Mick Mulvaney thing. He's a former member of the notorious House Freedom Caucus. And it's the kind of thing Trump the campaigner would not have liked. I'm I'm not gonna I'm I'm not gonna break new ground here by saying this, but it seems to me that one of the central ironies of this budget is that it really, really targets the sort of Americans that are reputed to be Trump's base. Am I crazy for saying that? No, there's a lot of cuts that will really hit rural Americans really hard. For one, it will hit suburban Americans. I mean, it eliminates the community development block grant, and that's used for basically everything and everything from like buying a van to drive elderly people to like out of town appointments to like laying new water lines. I mean, that will hit everyone. So, but yes, I do think it hits the people who allegedly voted for Trump very hard. So, this kind of raises like the ultimate question here is that. When when Trump talked to to these to these people about the kind of things he was going to do for them, improve their lives, the the populist rhetoric that we're all fond of 
fond of noting. Um, was he lying to them? Or is Trump such an absentee president that basically this, the ideologues he's surrounding him, he surrounded himself with are riding herd and he's just sort of diddling away each day as Mick Mulvaney enacts his agenda and Mnuchin enacts his agenda and Purdue enacts his. This, is there, is there, is there a, is there, a, is there a center in this White House where decisions actually get made? Or is he just sort of blithely whiling away every day? I mean, I think he's definitely an absentee president. But I also think that this is someone who has scammed people as a matter of like what he did. Like Trump University was all about selling people a bill of goods. So like, is it possible that it could be both? That he was both simultaneously lying, but also doesn't really care that much and is quite happy to hand it over to Mick Mulvaney to do whatever he wants. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> little from column A, little from column B, lazy and corrupt. Well, this budget sure reflects that. Alexis, thank you for joining us to talk about this. Thank you for having me. We always me. look forward to having you on the show. And Arthur, you, you, you're you always here because you work here. Yeah, I'm just here. I do look forward to seeing you. Thanks. It's, it's always great when you're around. Uh, Zach Carter missed out, as usual, but he'll be. Uh, you're going to hear from him actually very soon. We'll be right back. And we're back. I'm Zach Carter, joined as always by uh, J- Jason Lincolns. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's your name. Yes. Uh, and this week we've got uh, a very special guest. He's an economist with the Roosevelt Institute think tank and the co-editor and co-author of a new book called After Piketty, The Agenda for Economics and Inequality, Marshall Steinbaum. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I'm sitting here looking at this giant book. There's it's as like, big as the original. There's like Yeah, there's like 25 economists who have contributed to this collection that you, Heather Boucher, and Brad DeLong put together, uh, sort of responding to Piketty. Um, why? Why do this book? Well, the original was just, it has to be said, one of the major contributions to economics and to public discussion of the economy that I think has been published certainly in my lifetime and I think, uh, you know, long before that. Um, you know, we've had a lot of, uh, upheaval in our economic debate in recent years and to my mind and I think to the other co-editor's mind, you know, this book is the book that made sense of it Um, and it did so in a way that I think linked that uh, popular dissatisfaction with the economy that we all live in to the economics research that really underlies that dissatisfaction or at least uh, shows that to be based on reality. So Piketty and Saez and their many co-authors over the years uh, put together this research agenda about uh, rising inequality using new data, uh, extending existing data sources back well into the past relative to what we had had before they uh, began their project. Um, and they said, yeah, you know, it's real. Uh, Occupy Wall Street, that whole political movement, that was based on something real. And in a way, you know, the economics profession had a set of blinders on before the publication of that book that uh, really made them dismiss the sort of unrest about how the economy was working for everyone um, and uh, until it was the case that they could no longer deny it. So that book very famously uh, talked about the solution to income inequality being, among other things, a massive tax on on wealthy income holders, a global tax on the rich. Um, I, it's fair to say that, that Piketty has had an influence over, over economists, but do you think that in this political realm – 
we've moved closer to the kind of solutions he laid out. How lagging behind are our politics compared to the sort of shock that – I mean this book was a huge bestseller. It was up there with the girl on the train um, and, and, and all kinds of people read it. Yeah. Well, first of all, it's very interesting to hear you uh, characterize the debate in that way because uh, my view of uh, the reception of the book has really been it made a huge splash in public yeah. and in the public debate among economists. Uh, it certainly made a splash. I mean, everyone knew about it, and you know, a non-trivial number of them read it, which is a lot more than would read the standard. Uh, popular-facing book about the economy, but they really were in a kind of state of denial. I'm speaking of the professional academic economists. You know, they really did not want to have to take the book seriously. They were happy to take uh, Piketty's data seriously and that contribution, but insofar as the book itself offers a uh, novel interpretation of rising inequality, they didn't want to hear any of it. Um, at that time, that I would say that that has changed to some extent in the intervening time since it has been published. Um, so, uh, but as you say, in the uh, realm of policy solutions and you know what's actually de- being debated on the floor of Congress, I mean, it's quite obvious we've moved completely in the opposite direction uh, from what that from the sorts of uh, solutions that uh, Piketty was voicing. I think to some extent that. Um, is a little bit misleading as an interpretation. I mean, you know, to be frank here, we have. Oh yeah, that's a bubble yeah. unto its own. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, we should we should state that from the outset that I'm not talking about something that I think is broadly felt or it isn't isn't without its own prejudices. But yeah, go ahead. Is, isn't it isn't it weird though? Right? Like, I mean, I feel like I spent most of my sort of formative years as someone who was aware of like economy idea things, thinking that most of the economists in like the public sphere were all a bunch of idiots who had it completely wrong. Even though, of course, they'd had advanced degrees that I didn't have and could do math that I can't do. Uh, but there were, a lot of, there were a lot of politicians who could sta- state these ideas very simply and clearly. And now I feel like we've just had the complete flip where like all of these economists who I thought had their heads in the sand are taking these ideas very seriously. And politicians are like, uh, maybe we should uh, cut taxes on rich people again. Yeah, well, I mean, it's definitely true that uh, what the highest politicians are saying, and even you know what the people who are not in power are saying, is well behind the uh, sorts of policies that are discussed in that book, um, and that I think are frankly being discussed on the street and, and uh, mm-hmm. you know on the internet. I mean, uh, I completely agree with your characterization of sort of the view of the economics profession as having a lot of fancy degrees, but not necessarily a lot of insight into how the economy works. Um, and fr- you know, notwithstanding Piketty's publication and a lot of very very good stuff being done within economics, frankly, that still true of a huge proportion of the profession. Um, But on the other hand, there's definitely been a move more towards uh, Piketty's first interpretation of how we got to where we are and potential sets of solutions about what to do now um, among economists than one would have thought. And yet on the, uh, you know, uh, among the policymakers and the sort of public opining set on the economy, you know, we're still very much locked into a, a world where, you know, the most ambitious economic policy you're allowed to consider is that like everyone should go to college. And I'm not even talking about free college. That's you know, that's way beyond. <laughs> right. uh, yeah. Everyone yeah. has the right to go into crushing debt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, well, so your, your chapter in the book, it's the 18th chapter. It's called Inequality and the Rise of Social Democracy and Ideological History. Uh, what, why, why focus on, on the sort of on, on that, that sort of ideological uh, past rather than you know a bunch of numbers, let's say. Well, I think that uh, 
Piketty's history – so Capital in the 21st Century really feels to me at least like a history book. If you pick it up and read it, it is an account of things happening in history. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, while there's a ton of very interesting insights in there, all driven by the uh, data set that Piketty has spent his life putting together, um, I felt like the account of how things happen in history was a bit simplistic. The uh, the view or the, the model that's put forward is that capitalism has this inherently uh, inegalitarian tendency to it. Uh, you just sort of like – you know, put the train on the tracks and let it start running and inequality eventually uh, goes out of control um, until something comes and knocks the train off the tracks. And I think that that's um, too foreordained and really doesn't grapple with the story of how inequality ever got to be as high as it was uh, the first time or the last time it was as high as it was in the late 19th and early 20th centuries and how that was reversed. And, um, you know, economic, it's not just Piketty that has that problem. I mean, he has uh, his own set of uh, uh, theories and, and his own narrative of how that happened. And, you know, economists in general, I would say, have a tendency to what would be called teleological history by a professional historian. That is to say, you know, it's all uh, just a matter of big models and equations that all Mm -hmm. point to some inevitable result. Um, So I wanted to tell that story or to tell a different story in my chapter because I really felt like that uh, record needed a retelling and ideology and – More room for agency, for ideas, for politics. Exactly. Yes. So – yeah, it's, we need to correct the sort of bare bones economist telling of history to one that takes seriously exactly that. Um, you know what what policies are considered in the realm of possibility, and what are the political and uh, uh, what are the political forces and the dynamics of power that lead to uh, those policies either being uh, suppressed or in fact enacted. So in the chapter we talk about I, you know I list like a set of four policies that I think were critical to um, reducing inequality in the past, and and you know the the whole chapter is an account of how we went from those being a crazy radical leftist platform to actually being enacted into law. No, we've t- we've we've talked on the show before about how the founders sort of grokked a situation that could arise in the income and inequality sphere right from the beginning, and there's been throughout history uh, a manifestation of power to try to take power away from these big monopolies, and somehow in maybe we'll call it the last half century, that's gone really limp. It's gone really flaccid. I, I, I hate to use phallic terminology but no you don't I'm, you love to use it. I, I love to use it okay you're right you're right um can you can you explain where the where the drive to keep fighting this tendency toward income inequality has gone i think that is exactly the question of ideology i mean we developed we being you know the United States over the course of 50 or 60 years between the late 19th and early 20th century developed an ideology that said Concentration of power is a threat to individual and public well-being and and the role of government and the role of politics and the role of social movements is to counteract that. And then and then over the course of another 50 to 80 years, uh, we had a totally uh, – a total reversal of that tendency and it was a very uh, conscious – uh, movement of political organizing at, a, at an elite level, so putting uh, into play a lot of money, a lot of expert opinion, um, a lot of the sort of weapons of academic as well as political conflict to basically roll back that trend because frankly that trend dis- destroyed the power of the powerful and and that – you know, the powerful wanted to be back enthroned where they were before and so they uh, implemented a, a long-term political agenda and a political movement and associated kind of hangers-on in academia and in all manner of institutions that had their own little role to play to get us back to where we were in the late 19th century and that is exactly what you've seen happening. The new Gilded Age. Yeah. 
So the book is called After Piketty. So uh, maybe it's too simplistic a question, but but what now? Well, the reason why we put it that way is because we, we really do see, in fact, and then we hope to see further, the division of both uh, economic research and public economic debate into a before and after Piketty uh, uh, epic. So the idea is, you know, this is a, this is a book that really lays out uh, how we got to where we are, that uh, evolution is not uh, uh, acceptable in a democratic society. And so that implies a whole range of changes uh, both at the op- operating at the uh, academic level. So what are research agendas going forward and how have they changed as a result of these findings? Um, and then uh, where do we have to go with policy to bring back policy ideas that uh, you know have not really been considered doable in a long time? What are we going to call – people who are sort of followers of, of Piketty. Like, like we have Marxists, we have Keynesians. Uh, are, are they Pikettians? Like, what's going to be the word? I, I, I'll, I'll credit uh, my uh, co-author on this book, Branko Milanovic, with saying uh, Piketian is the adjective of choice. And I'm, I'm perfectly uh, comfortable associating okay. myself with that. All right. All right. We'll go with Piketian too. Well, Marshall Steinbaum, thanks so much for joining us. Th- uh, glad to have been here. Thanks for the conversation. And we'll be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Zach Young. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by After Piketty editor Marshall Steinbaum, Alexis Goldstein of Americans for Financial Reform, as well as HuffPost reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, and Travis Waldron. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of HuffPost podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to So That Happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.